Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Tonight on Bite Into It, it is Dan Salmon. Good evening. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Uh, yeah, fairly well. Um, Wednesday Wednesday evening just kind of snuck up on me, but um, I'm going to greet it like an old friend. And uh, yeah, glad to be with you both. What's well, it? It's a, a day a day like today. It's worth it's worth letting it sneak up on you. I think. <laughs> um, in technology, have you had a, a good week? Uh, a, a middling week? A oh, bad week? look, I think it's it's probably middling. Um, I've I've been off the socials largely largely this week, which has been kind of pleasant. Um, apart from, I suppose, does, does, does streaming count as a social media platform? I'm not sure. Um, no. Okay. That's, that's a definite no on that. All right, cool. Um, in terms of, in terms of my work, it's just a constant up and down of crashes, but that's okay. That's okay. I'm here with you guys and that all makes it all right. Nice. Um, also with you tonight, Ro, how are you? I'm very well, Warren. How are you? Doing okay. Um, have you had a, a good week in technology? What's What's been your highlight or low light? I've had a very interesting week in technology. I've been going out of my way to reduce my social media screen time. Got to stop that tweet scrolling, man. Mm. Um, but equally, I've started work on a project which involves Jira. It's kind of like my nemesis. I really prefer not to use it, but it's central to so many projects. So sure enough, I had uh, Jira induction today and I'm just going to have to roll with it for the next little while. How is, I haven't had an induction in a while. How was how the induction? Was it like lots of, lots of PowerPoint or like cartoon videos or what did they go with? It definitely wasn't that entertaining. It was more of a, a look through um, how, how this particular project's been set up and it's a lot. So, so yeah, just a whole lot of JIRA. whole lot of JIRA. Fair mm. enough. Um, I'll be with you on the show tonight as well. I'm Warren Davies. And, um, yeah, we've got heaps to talk about. Um, uh, a lot of how we meet and explore ideas today is influenced by um, AI or artificial intelligence from uh, autocorrect to autocomplete, um, smart devices at home, like really basic stuff through to more, uh, I guess, disparate types of AI. It's a, it's a bit of a thing, as, um, as you might have observed. Uh, so we're going to explore how AI and uh, ideas um, come together in, in a variety of different ways with uh, Dave King of Move37, uh, which are a, a local studio uh, exploring the space, um, and that's in a few minutes on the show. So stick around to, to have a chat about that with us. Um, and also later in the show, um, Big Sur, the, the latest uh, Mac uh, operating system release, um, uh, came out uh, recently and, was, and promptly stumped uh, a bunch of us. Um, so we'll be having a chat with Lucy of Digital Rights Watch um, uh, about the Big Sur Mac OS kerfuffle um, uh, a little bit later in the show. So worth hanging around for that one as well. But um, before then, we've got a bunch of news and interesting things to talk about. Um, I wanted to have a chat about uh, Digital Future Now. I caught this through a tweet by Richard Wynn, who I kind of hate to love um, on a regular basis, but he gets out there and he, and he has a go. Um, so that's a, that's a you know, table stakes, I guess, kind of thing, but he's doing it. Um, Digital Future Now, I, I read on uh, on Twitter this morning that um, a $12 million digital hub is being created in Cremorne and kind of scratched my head a little bit and went, I'm pretty sure there's a big, big hub down there already that people have constructed for themselves. 
but um, still there's, there's money going into it and I, I guess you can't really sniff at that too much. Um, so I did a bit of digging and uh, yeah, Digital Future Now is part of the, uh, I guess, the um, tech roadmap um, element of the Victorian state uh, budget, um, uh, which is in the works. Um, so that particular spend will focus on a, a digital training hub um, uh, Closing regional uh, mobile black spots um, is a large part of it. I think 300 million of about 600 million is going uh, towards that. Um, great place to start. I don't think we need, uh, you know, necessarily a fancy plant, fancy pants hub with fancy plants, of course, um, <laughs> be before we need to clean up the black spots. So that's um, that's a, a smart idea, um, and also increasing uh, increasing broadband uh, infrastructure um, around uh, Melbourne and, and regional centres and, and further afield. So that's a good thing. Um, 100 million of this budget is to be spent uh, this financial year, so um, that is uh, also a good thing. I feel like, have you guys come across the um, the term big build? Have you seen that in Victoria ever? <laughs> um, I, I, full disclosure, my job is related a lot to the oh, big build. Are. So I'm, one of I'm, the builders. I'm, I'm one of the builders, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I probably can't talk too much about it, but I'm so, very, yes, very familiar with the accusing term. accusing you from this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Ro, big build. What what do you what's the vibe on that? Do you think? I know next to nothing about it. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. It's all top secret, uh, apparently. But um, yeah, no, big big build is, uh, I, I guess, just a, a catch all for uh, you know big bits of infrastructure, whether it's technology like this one or you know um, uh, train loops or roads or, or what have you. Um, you know, we're building, which is always smiled upon, and it's big, which is you know newsworthy, I guess. But um, this one, um, this one, I guess, is is like partly a response to the the year that we've had, uh, especially in Victoria, and uh, I guess rising unemployment and just a very soft market for for jobs and um, and businesses uh, in general. So, hoping to maybe woo the tradie dollar by making stuff um, and watching that money flow out through sausage rolls and big M's and uh, like into, into other things. Um, but yeah, I, like, uh, you know, I support this. I think we uh, definitely um, quite often feel like we're um, uh, lagging behind the world uh, in terms of obviously broadband infrastructure, um, mobile coverage. Um, I mean, we are looking at 5G, um, but also there are places that you're still scrapping around on 3G. I've actually worked around myself and found myself on 3G. So um, there's a bit of, um, bit of work still to be done. Definitely. Yeah, it's definitely some steps in the right direction and I'm, I'm excited to see it all happen for sure. Absolutely. Mm. Um, you're also excited about Parler. Is that true <laughs> or am I... I'm intrigued. I am absolutely intrigued by Parler. So for our listeners at home, Parler is a new social media network that uh, has come out and badged itself as a bit of a free speech platform. And um, it saw quite substantial growth in uh, users after the US election. So November's been a pretty big month for it. Um, it claims that it's free of bots. And um, part of the, I guess, the the meat behind the bone, the that particular claim is that it verifies users by their driver's licences and in the states their social security numbers. So um, that is a pretty onerous process. There are very few platforms that require that level of ID. And um, Parler has actually had a major breach um, in July this year, and um, this is all very, very new today, but it's report, been reported today that over 5,000 users have had their licences and social security numbers hacked, along with records of their direct messages. So this is a pretty fast-moving story 
more information about today's breach is still coming to light. Um, but one of the things that has gotten very interesting about it, it's badged itself as free speech platform. It has definitely been taken up quite quickly by people who lean to more the right-hand side of politics. So um, a number of notable and very senior Republican senators and the like have had their direct messages hacked as part of this. So none of the information's been released, but it's likely to be. So this will be an interesting one to watch. It will be. It'll be interesting to see who, if anyone claims responsibility for the hack, because yes. you know, as as you've said, you know, it's become a bit of a right wing darling. People who think that Twitter is, you know, censoring them and cancelling them and more deplatforming them are moving to parlour. and so it's mm-hmm. it's sort of become this honeypot for people of a particular stripe and. I wonder what the motivation of the hackers was, whether it was just we want to go for this particular kind of person and what that says about the hacker and all. You know, there's a, there's a, lot, there's a lot of layers to this onion and it's going to be very interesting to see them unravel. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Even even just putting the, you know, the direct messages completely aside, um, that's a heck of a lot of very valuable identity theft uh, yeah, you know, you've, on, you've got a, <laughs> a senator's driver's license number and social security number. That's yeah. that, that that's pretty um, lucrative for someone who Easy wants stuff. to do something with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dan, uh, you've got some Amazon news for us. Oh, Amazon, our favourite company that doesn't respect their workers, um, is. Um, <laughs> Doing exactly what they have been doing in previous time. Like, okay, let's let, let's go back to the basics of this. Amazon have, um, in recent months, become very, uh, I suppose, criticised publicly for their treatment of particularly their warehouse workers and their fulfilment centre workers. I think is what they're called in terms of um, you know bashing down unionism, bashing down any kind of kind of collective action based from those workers. Now, it's uh, come to light that uh, through, you know, some strategic, I guess, uh, mining of information from Amazon internal communications um, <laughs> is that Amazon are kind of gone balls deep on this. Like, they have um, engaged the services of Pinkerton, which is a US company based in well, I've, I've, they they're founded in the 1800s, around about the time of the Civil War, but they've become very well known as being, you know, violent union busters, like in the kind of you know 1920s and 1930s when you're looking at, you know, the the history of union busting in the US. It was Pinkerton that were going down there with the truncheons and the and you know the violence to kind of you know disrupt strikes and and union action and uh they're still around they're still um very very much active in this space and they are um one of amazon's new uh i suppose contracts that they've decided to engage the services of pinkerton um i guess it's not a huge surprise considering it's sort of what amazon have been kind of well known for doing but they've i'm a bit surprised to be honest that they've done it in light of the massive amount of criticism that they've gotten for tr- the way that they treat their staff. Mm. Um, and, you know, rather than being like, sorry, our bad, and it's like, no, you know what, we're actually going to double down on this. Um, it's in addition to that, they've, you know, obviously, well, not obviously, but they've also been hacking into, you know, Facebook chats and of their employees to try and kind of wheedle out the, the I suppose, the... Uh, Oh, what's the word? Dissenters. Dissenters. I was thinking. I was. I was thinking of a more of a more insidious term than that. But yeah, the the kind of the the architects of the, of of the, of the resistance. Um, Love it. Yeah. Oh, look, it's it's just. Well, for example, here we go. 
Um, in a report from November 2019, analysts wrote that Amazon hired Pinkerton spies who were inserted in inverted commas into a warehouse in Wroclaw in Poland to investigate an allegation that management coached job candidates on how to complete job interviews and possibly even conducted the process for them. So, look, I mean, it's I've only really I've only found out about Pinkerton in researching for this article, and it's, it, they've got a very interesting history. It's worth looking them up and then realizing that their involvement with the Amazon, um, I suppose. Uh, situation is not necessarily going to paint anyone in a particularly good light. They were actually actually involved in protecting uh, Abraham Lincoln back in the day. They had a famous slogan, "We never sleep," um, and oh, they had uh, a, a massive a massive playbook about how to infiltrate um, and break apart, sort of you know, do counter counter surveillance and and counter counter insurgency and stuff like that. Wow! Um, so, so they probably have us on the file now. Having they probably do, yeah. yeah. I mean, we could, we could, we could be one of them, but um, <laughs> wow, I'm already on their on their list. Yeah, yeah. the the, Pe- the Peppletons, which is a very in joke. Um, <laughs> they've got a great, they've got a great logo as well. If you look it up, it's a little, it's a kind of littlest eye, which is um, very kind of like you know, um, uh, foreshadowing the kind of tech yeah. technology that we're talking about today. Yeah, it's a, it's yes. a, that's a, that's a touch big brothery. Mm. It is. Well, I'm going to very quickly lighten the mood and talk about outer space. So um, Swinburne's Professor Alan Duffy, who's one of Australia's most recognisable space communicators, has been named Academic of the Year in the inaugural Australian Space Awards. And his work is all around finding novel uses for astrophysical knowledge in aiding business and society on Earth. And um, it's kind of funny, um, and Swinburne's doing some really cool stuff in this space, but... um, Space boomtish. Oh, God. Um, I didn't mean to do that. I'm so sorry. Yeah, sure you um, didn't. But, you know, basically so much stuff runs off space now, everything from our satellites, our communications, and so many businesses are more involved in space than we realise. So um, we're going to hear more and more from our space specialists. Um, so congratulations to Professor Alan Duffy. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm always in favour of, uh, you know, communicating space. I'm big, I'm big on space. Cheers me right up. Absolutely. Thinking about being a tiny part of a huge universe, experiencing itself subjectively. Okay, I need to stop. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Hey, we've all been using uh, AI in some capacity, whether we've been thinking too much about it or just um, uh, rolling with it um, as per the design. Um, So we thought what better time at this time of year when we don't have to sort of necessarily make too much sense of the hard news but sort of get into the the more abstract stuff um, as things get uh, a little bit looser and sillier um, then to talk about um, interesting ideas and uh, strange intersections between technology and ideas. Uh, Move 37 is a machine intelligence company uh, developing an engine that powers critical thinking and sense making in humans and Dave King is one of the uh, brains behind that. Uh, Dave joins us now. Dave how are you doing? I'm doing really, I'm really great. Thank you for having me on. No trouble. Um, I have to ask, um, move, move 37. What's the, what's the story behind the name and, and the, the idea, I guess. Um, yeah, so, so the, the name comes from, do you know, the, the ancient sort of Chinese game of Go, board game Go. Um, oh, yes. They held the, they held the world championships of Go in 2017. And there's a guy named Lee Sedol, who's a um, bit of a rock star in, in South Korea. He'd won the, 
the World Championships of Go something like 18 times in a row, and Google challenged him, Google built a machine called AlphaGo uh, to compete with him in the game of Go. Um, and so they staged a, a massive kind of exhibition match or a series of exhibition matches in Seoul. Um, and I was watching this from Melbourne. It was, it was kind of a, a really interesting time. I don't know, you obviously remember sort of Kasparov being beaten by Deep Blue, and that was a pivotal time in, in chess. Um, for Go, the game, um, this was a pivotal time, and it was assumed that, I mean, obviously you can speculate. There's actually a killer Netflix um, documentary on this if you want to go and watch it, um, which is quite a human perspective on the story. Um, so there's about 20 million people watching this live. The first game, Lisa Dole won easily. The second game, Lisa Dole won easily. In the third game, um, in move, at move 37, the computer or the machine uh, played a, a move that at first the commentators thought was um, erroneous. It was like a mistake and it was bad strategy. Um, and they kind of said, oh, the machine's broken and its handlers, you know, its handlers being the Google team behind the scenes kind of wondered what was happening. But the reality was... It had learnt what later um, became described as or came to be described as as a creative move, something unusual, something unexpected. It had noticed and learnt the way Lisa Dole played the game and it had played a move that a human wouldn't have played. And um, the rest is history. Uh, AlphaGo went on to beat Lisa Dole um, in, the, in the series, but it was that move 37 um, which captured the imagination of a lot of people who were thinking or having a look at how, how machine learning might uh, adapt with either minimal training or, or, you know, almost zero training these days, fine-tuning and training, to, to understand the task at hand. So it, it was an extraordinary moment for, for the game of Go, but it was also uh, a metaphor for where this stuff might go in lots of other fields. Interesting. I, I'm just trying to imagine, did AlphaGo actually get shouted around of drinks at the bar afterwards at the event or, or not? I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure not. Um, <laughs> Well, there's actually, a, I don't know if you've seen the, the um, LA party robot that used to go out in the 80s in, in Los Angeles and attend parties, and um, that was probably more his, his gig. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm very much interested in, I, I guess, um, uh, as, as we get to understand AI a little bit better and, I guess, some of the, the business imperatives behind its use, we, we sort of, you know, wisen up a little bit and um, approach it a little bit more cautiously. But we don't often talk about um, the, uh, I guess, the... Uh, the more abstract or sort of pure potential of what AI can do, perhaps from a creative or an artistic point of view. Um, be interested to hear uh, uh, more about that and, and your experience with exploring that. Yeah, well, I think um, so. A lot of my my career and kind of you know interest have been in sort of commercial creativity for ages, so digital experiences, communications, and advertising, dare I say it, and such. And uh, um, I was always fascinated by the creative process, whether that's a, an individual artist or, or, or a pair of people working together and, and what that entailed, whether that's in architecture or journalism or coming up with ideas for, you know, for what you're going to paint or poetry or whatever. Um, and so when I saw this Move 37 moment and, and kind of had a, not an epiphany because I was wrong in many ways about how it might roll out, but... I had a, an inspiration, an inspiration moment to kind of go, how might this this work in creativity? And I think the way it's worked out in the last few years has been faster and more interesting, and more exciting than than I imagined. Probably most people imagined. Um, so now, you know, late 2020, we see. Um, I think some of the most fascinating uses are when people are using AI to conceptually understand what they might, you know, think of is the actual idea. So rather than producing images or producing 
words or songs or whatever, of course, machines and software can do that faster. But what's really interesting is what is the actual idea um, and, and how might you collaborate with an AI to, to tease that out and sort of see new perspectives and um, uncover different, you know, avenues that you might not have thought of before. I, I think super interesting. Cool. So I guess the, the question then is how do you, are you gearing towards actually doing that? So we at Move Thirty Seven, we're, we're we're super interested in, in critical thinking, which um, for us is around um, you know researching and understanding a topic or domain, and, and and trying to trying to see all the different associated concepts. You know, you might be looking at a um, you know a, a person or a moment in history or or a, an aspect of culture or um, something else, and and you really want to research that and and see the different dimensions and shape of that. Um, so I think of that as kind of the, the concept ideation stage, and that could be used for uh, it could be used for investigative journalism or marketing or um, you know financial investment or, or um, all sorts of use cases, education, um, researching in academia, um, and then after that, after you've kind of found the concept space and hopefully discovered some new kind of ways of seeing, seeing things that you wouldn't have otherwise discovered. Then where AI, I think, is really interesting, and, and um, Warren alluded to this before, is that predictive stuff. So have an AI that's able to go, okay, I get the nature of the idea that you're interested in and, and provide thought starters and kind of, you know, imagine, you know, sentences that you might finish or you provide sentences that it might finish and you go in this virtuous kind of cycle, this, this kind of collaborative loop. I think where are things are heading. And I think, and then some of the tools that are coming out are, uh, super accessible for people who aren't technical. It's really interesting. Do you find? Um, uh, I, I was. Um, I, I read. I read something online yesterday where someone said, even when it predicts what I want it to, what what, what I want to do, um, even when it's right, I'm still mad at it. And this was a person, you know, um, somewhere somewhere in the in the blossom of life, and you know, kind of um, not not exactly dewy. And I was kind of wondering to to um, uh, people coming through, people who don't have necessary sort of necessarily judgments about AI and haven't seen it develop from very clunky to you know a little bit less clunky. Do they do do people just kind of jump in with it and say I'm happy to I'm happy to have an idea or a thought started by somebody else, even if it's kind of very out there or really on a tangent, and then just rolling with it? Is that an impulse that um, that you've noticed? Yeah, absolutely. I think it depends on your expectation. So. Obviously, and you guys have talked about this on, on the show heaps of times, that the, the notion of AI in, in, in culture and in science fiction is very different from reality. But if you think about what the, what the capabilities are today and, and how might they be useful to, to the task at hand, and, and, and I've worked with sort of designers and creatives and, and architects. You know, in architecture, you can um, sort of feed a, a brief or a description of a, of a 3D space or, a, or an object itself and, and have the AI generate different sort of possibilities. I think if you consider them as possibilities rather than the answer um, and, and that you go into this with optimism and you, and you kind of refine and learn and, and fine-tune it along the way, um, you, you're probably in for a good experience. I think I'm you know, working with a designer recently who loves the tone of the AI when it gets stuff slightly wrong. We call it bot speak. So it's almost like a, a verbal aesthetic, which is, um, which is quite interesting. And we've seen this in our culture develop over the last few years when a machine gets something slightly wrong. And I think that's really attractive on a number of levels. One is 
it's funny, but also I think deep down it reminds it, it, I think humans like to be reminded that they're superior. <laughs> so when it gets up slightly wrong, we go, yeah, yeah, this is, this is really cool. This is, this is really exciting and funny, but it's not going to threaten my job. <laughs> so, so, so what happens when that stops doing that? Sorry? What happens when the computers stop getting things slightly wrong? Well, I think the more you, the more you work with it, 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 it definitely does stop doing that. Um, if, if you get into, like if you literally have a task at hand to design something or come up with ideas, something, and you, and you, iterate and fail and iterate and fail like we've heard in the Silicon Valley sort of parlance for years with an AI it'll, it'll start to refine and get better um, and so like I say I think about this this kind of notion of a tango a dance with the with the AI where the AI is doing some things really well and you're doing some some, some things really well it's really good at, at, at recalling vast amounts of facts information and associations that you never could but you're really good at wisdom and instinct and gut feel and emotion and, and, and the AI doesn't know a good idea when it sees it, but, you know, the more you work with it, the more it can understand. Mm. So it, it kind of, you're learning it, teaching its subjectivity almost. Yeah, but it's, it, it's, it's a can of worms, that one. It's, um, it's, machine learning is really built to, you know, it's not really designed for this stuff. It, it's really built to optimise towards a perfect function. So, so machine learning typically is seen in, like, you know, what's the weather going to be tomorrow? What's the stock price going to be tomorrow? And there's one perfect answer. Um, so when you think about creativity, there's not one perfect answer that you can, you know, create a, design an algorithm to come up with that. Um, so I think it's an interesting question. I think you're teaching it your version of subjectivity for the task at hand. Hmm. I'm interested in what you were saying before about uh, helping helping us to think more critically. Um, could, could you give an example? Well, I mean, for example, we we're talking about uh, earlier in the show a piece of news about investing a lot of money in technology uh, in Victoria as a, I, I guess, a, a sort of um, uh, a shot in the arm for the economy in in a way. Um, could you kind of like um, expand on that, maybe using that example, or even one that just yeah. comes to mind about how do we think critically about an issue using AI? Yeah, absolutely. So the way we would approach that is to go. Okay, is there a document set or a bunch of pages or articles that represent this topic space? So um, imagine there's um, 10,000 articles about, what was it called, Big Build, um, mm. or the Big Build or something. Imagine there's, there's a bunch of different um, articles or blog posts or business cases or PowerPoint presentations, whatever it is, that you chuck into the engine, and then it, it's able to kind of map out the topic space within that. So it goes, you know, you you know about Big Bill, but you might not have considered this aspect or this topic or this relationship or this type of causality or consequence that once we pass the algorithms over, actually become really evident in the document set. Um, so for me, it's imagine like it's kind of an almost like automatically generating mind map of the topic space, and then you're able to kind of traverse and look around that and go, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't considered that. So it's not like a search engine where you go, tell me about Big Build or it's actually an exploration of, of thinking maps is the way we kind of like to think about it. I'm quite interested in um, how you see Move 37 in its potential for like impacting the usefulness of big data. One of the things I've really consistently heard in the marketing space is, yeah, we've collected all this really rad data, but secretly, and we'll tell you this after 10 beers, we don't really know what to do with it to turn it into fresh creative Ideas. Is this an area that you think, um, from a commercial standpoint, um, that could be explored quite dramatically? I think so. I think I think when you look at AI and creativity, you know, I was thinking about this coming into chat with you guys. The, there's kind of two fields. There's artistic expression, where you don't really have a, like I said, a, like a, a, a finite objective. You 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 you're in it for the process. You're in it to get an emotion out. You want to 
create something, you might have an idea, but part of it is the, you know, um, as we know, the journey. And so that's very different from commercial um, creativity when the objective is often commercial. So in advertising, that's, you know, sell more stuff or in, in, in architecture, it might be sell the plan or have people, you know, wayfind or whatever it is. Um, so I think um, the big data issue for marketing is often that it's nothing to do with creativity. It's about optimising for, um, you know, clicks or the cost of media or those kind of things. So um, Warren knows this, this side of the story as well, that most of the data in, in, in marketing and advertising is about media and impressions and frequency and those kind of things. It's not about it, – there's nothing – there's very little there to inform the creative process. Mm. So if you come out from the other angle and go, what's this idea about? Oh, this idea is about – we're working on the use case of pilot project for a skincare company. Um, we don't do stacks in marketing, but this one is in marketing, and it's around female confidence. And what what are the aspects of female confidence as it relates to skincare? So things like um, self-esteem and, and beauty and, and um, all sorts of stuff that come out in, yeah. in the document set for this. That's really interesting stuff for, for a bunch of creatives to work with and go, I, I am not experiencing that, but now I can walk a mile in your shoes and understand the issue from your side. So that's the kind of more qualitative stuff that I reckon is useful. Awesome. Um, also interested to know about um, any examples or, or, or things that you could um, suggest people have a look at around um, uh, art. So I, I, I was hunting through uh, festivals today and uh, I feel like there's a beautiful opportunity for even just some of the silly stuff that you were mentioning about first up, like it's funny when they get it wrong or even the, the LA party robot. Um, are there any examples of stuff like happening around the world in, in art forms that um, are kind of AI meets ideas that are interesting? I think so. I think um, some of the things that come to mind are people who are generating, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a cliche now if you've been watching this space for a few years, but you can generate sort of stories in the, in, in the in the tone or in the style of, of another writer. So style transfer is, is 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 what we see when we use filters on Instagram. You know, I, I want it to be a different style even though I took that photo, but the same can work for text. So for instance, one of my favorite examples is a um, is a is an application called Neural Neural Storyteller. And uh, and all that machine, all that machine knew how to um, the only way it knew how to talk, the only language it had at hand was Mills and Boone romantic novels. <laughs> so when it was prompted, when it was shown a picture of um, uh, two sumo wrestlers, the only language it could be to describe that, to capture it, was two beautiful boys in their underwear embrace. And, and it's quite an interesting analogy to kind of go, okay, so AI is so limited to what we teach it. Um, yeah. But people, um, there's, there's a guy named Robin Sloan um, who's an author in the States who's really interested in kind of generative um, literature and sentence spaces. So he, he'll take a sentence and say, um, I went to the shops is the first sentence and the last sentence is, um, you know, my wife um, killed me. Can you please fill in the other sentences <laughs> within that? And that's his narrative arc. And the AI will take a shot at doing this vector walking, which is basically filling in the sentences. And it's, 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 it's loosely right, but there's no right. You know, in, in an original story, there's no right. So... Um, uh, and, and then, yeah, people exploring, um, generating artwork to be sold at Sotheby's for, you know, for hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, which obviously brings about the, the, the fascinating issues of, sort of copyright and credit and, um, you know, who, who, who's responsible, um, all those kind of things. So, yeah, I think, I think if, you, if, you, if you look in any, any of the given fields you're interested in, for me it's language and text 
Um, but you know, in any of those sort of imagery, poetry. Um, there's actually an interesting one today that came out from Google Creative Labs who did a, 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 um, uh, a project with a production, a music production company in Sydney, um, and it was called um, Memo Demo or Demo Memo. It's basically for artists, musical artists, to just sing into the app uh, and then they can sort of style transfer that into a different instrument. Um, so they can go, now uh, I go, you know, sing a little bit and then I want to hear that as a trumpet or a percussion or whatever. So I think that's a nice example of where you can go, you know, I'll use this as an inspirational or motivational tool just to get the creative process started. That's uh, a really kind of cool idea of, the, the, you know, bringing in the, I suppose, the, the, the spark of the humanity back to it. I, I, I do have to say when you mentioned the, the generative text thing, it just took me back to that Harry Potter book from a couple of years ago, which I still read when I'm wanting to laugh every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dave, um, so uh, just to kind of, you know, round it out, how can people find out a little bit more about what you're doing with Move 37? Um, oh, we're, uh, we've got a website at move37.ai. Um, or I'm Dave King at Twitter. Fantastic. On the best one. Great. And 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 can you give us a sneak peek at any of the stuff that you've been working on in, in that you can talk about? Look, I think I think one of the interesting things that we touched on is is how do you take how do you refine that? And a lot, a lot of this is psychology and sociology rather than technology. How do you how do you get that type of behaviour and type of collaboration working in new ways between human and machine? And I think I'm quite excited by that. I'm, I'm, try to keep an optimistic lens while also keeping an eye on the, the ethical aspects and augmentation rather than automation is, is something we've been focused on. You know, we don't see that anyone's losing their job over our stuff. It's actually making them better at their job and hopefully allow them to work on more interesting things. Hopefully. Uh, but, yeah, but take, but take that space from research and understand um, to thought starters and generating new ideas is, is what we're working on and I think... Um, next few months we'll have something really exciting to show. Absolutely. Well, we look, look, look forward to hearing about it. Thank you very much for your time, Dave. Thanks, guys. We've been speaking to Dave King of Move 37 on uh, AI and ideas creation. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. Yeah, we've, uh, I'm, I'm a Mac user. Um, I haven't updated to uh, Big Sur um, in the past uh, a couple of weeks, but um, I probably will do so soon. But I did have pause for thought there and just thought, hang on a sec, maybe we should check this out. So um, we did put the call out out there. And uh, yeah, Lucy from Digital Rights Watch um, is uh, on the case. Um, big Sur have had some big issues and uh, we wanted to have a chat about it. Lucy, thanks for making time. Thanks for um, continuously improving the pronunciation of my name on this uh, show. I, I appreciate that. We're working on it. We've got a plan to, by 2021, we'll, we'll make you feel at home, I think. Brilliant. <laughs> um, so I, I guess as a way to introduce this, um, we, we do have the regularly um, sort of outdoors titled uh, updates to the OS on, on the Mac operating uh, system over the past uh, few years. I, I forget when we switched to... To this kind of naming um, theme, but um, Big Sur has had some problems. Not only have I guess the first people to to sort of start working with it, such as journalists and tech reporters and so forth, and security specialists like yourself, um, uh, but um, the I guess the security elements and the privacy elements of the update, and I guess an extension of what's been going on with Apple and their operating systems for a, a little while now, has been a real concern. What 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 is what is your take on it um, so far? Yeah, well, one of the reasons I was so quick to respond, not, not that I would characterize myself as a technical expert, <laughs> um, but more of a tech policy expert. And, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of 
sort of issues that were raised by this update that aren't necessarily um, just endemic to this update. So it's a lot of issues I think that people have been grappling with <laughs> as we kind of come to rely on these systems um, increasingly more. Um, you know, the interconnectivity of the services we use becomes more um, integrated. And it's a lot of things that I think users actually very actively push for. Um, you know, people love iCloud. They love the functionality of being able to sync um, seamlessly across their devices. But obviously, uh, that means your devices are constantly talking on the internet, which is not necessarily something that um, computers were built to do <laughs> back in the day. They were just meant to, you know, crunch crunch data and then play games. And um, yeah, so, I, you know, a lot of technology, I think people don't realize just how much technology is built on the fly <laughs> and like truly um, the the sort of troubleshooting uh, you know people discuss a lot of privacy and ethics in, in my spaces but actually even the technical side of things um, it just really gets um, fixed and patched as we go along and I think that's sort of what we saw with this update. Is, is it really just another case of sort of behavioral surplus from users being harvested in a, you know, a sort of wider net and being sort of unsold to us as uh, Hey, here's a great way to connect your phone to your, to your Mac or, or something like that. Is it, is it, I mean, maybe not an objective point of view, but from, from your point of view, do you feel like we are getting a good trade for the services that we get for, for what we offer in return to, to sort of large, large enterprises like Apple? Oh, well, I think that's up to everyone to determine. <laughs> I, I, I certainly um, know, and a lot of privacy advocates, I think, in this space, we would really want the companies to respect our privacy because we love the idea of the tools that are out there. Um, I have a lot of friends who love, um, you know, in this space, who love the, like, voice-activated um, things and who would love to have an Alexa or an Echo in the home. Um but it just right now the fr the framework protecting privacy isn't there, so that's like we struggle with the we want the tech, <laughs> but the protections aren't in place, um, and it's a real chicken or the egg situation. Like, did the consumers create a need and a demand for this, or are the companies roping us in um, to increasingly more interconnected services? Um, I don't know. Um, and right now, you know the sort of interconnection it's really systemic because for work for every anything we rely on you know a ton of people use google docs for instance um the icloud and sort of uh, sync patches that were described and that that created a lot of the problems in this particular update you know that's the same principle is that we expect these things to be available to us simultaneously across many places and that comes with a lot of trade-offs. And techies have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to do the certificate trades <laughs> in the way that's fast <laughs> and simultaneous. Um, and yeah, I mean, were they trying to compromise privacy by design or was this something that was overlooked? I don't know. The technical analysis seemed to say that they are have apologized for some of this. They're fixing some of this. Um, and a lot of the Reddit threads and stuff have indicated that, you know, this was something that people noticed in beta and told them, you should, you know, you shouldn't really roll this out into the wild. Um, so I don't know if they want to plead ignorance uh, and just fix it. <laughs> uh, but it is the reality. I think people don't realize just how much their devices talk you know, without them noticing. It's just something that people really expect in a just, hey, I if it's not working, then I'm furious kind of way, you know. I'm going to have a go at trying to get a little bit technical here. I would consider mm -hmm. myself non-technical as well. So you're among friends here. So 
what I understand is um, there is a protocol, the online certificate status protocol, which helps uh, all these devices understand where you are and what you're doing at any given time. But um, one of the issues is that works with uh, unencrypted um, transmissions um, and passes data in an unencrypted fashion through a third party uh, content delivery network as well, which is which is not run by Apple. It's a, a third party service. So basically, we're sending all of these messages uh, unencrypted um, uh, around things like VPNs and firewalls and so forth. So um, it's a you know it's a great target for for um, malware and and viruses and all kinds of uh, nasty junk that's out there. Um, in an effort as a, a sort of nasty workaround to allow things to talk to each other and to get this kind of um, sometimes thick but sometimes thin value. Does that, I don't know, how do I do? Four stars out of five? Is that fair? <laughs> Not too shabby. <laughs> um, yeah, look, you know, if you like, if you look a decade and a half back, um, a massive chunk of the internet was unencrypted. <laughs> <laughs> like only recently sort of are people aware that they should have an HTTPS before a website. Um, you know, that was not a standard. Um, you know, when internet banking sort of rolled around, it was barely encrypted. Um, so we're really, you know, the, the, and I think now Apple have said that they would encrypt that traffic. Um, mm. You know, it's, it's just something I think we, can criticize now but realistically it's been a long road to even get here um this far um and apple certainly has had its share of um controversy around encrypting its products um certificates aren't an easy thing um and they can become compromised like you know dealing with them it's a structural issue and i think if you got like the world's best engineers in a room and told them to like rethink the way the internet communicates and authenticates requests <laughs> Maybe they would design a different system, but the reality is some sort of traffic data has to be going with your requests to authenticate your device to the server, right? So that's what sort of the intermediaries um, do. In this case, it was some weird third party I've never heard of. Often it's more known parties like Cloudflare. Um, and then, you know, when you have uh, crisis situations like Hardbleed, uh, which was a huge vulnerability um, in sort of these protocols where, you know, people could kind of come in and, and steal the individual keys. So oh, it's very hard to describe <laughs> over radio because <laughs> people can't see me do things with my hands. Um, <laughs> but essentially, um, you know, what Cloudflare did, I think at the time was like revoke, revoke all the certificates, um, you know, and then sort of re, um, reissue them as they could verify that they hadn't been compromised by that bug. Um, so it can create huge, uh, you know, the way we've kind of set up the internet in a way I think um, can be quite vulnerable. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure people in their day to day, when they like turn on their new shiny system, um, they realize that, which is why so many people are furious when there's a new device and you install a system and it gets bricked. That's what happened, right? People are <clears throat> furious how that happened. But the reality is a lot of it is quite fragile. Um, and there's a lot of people in the background making sure uh, these protocols are working and communicating the way they're meant to. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things with, um, for example, the Apple systems, which was one of the earlier ones to go, oh, we're so integrated. If you get the laptop and then you get the phone and everything talks and then you get your iPod, um, you know, it really was that, um, I suppose it put a lot of consumers' minds at ease. It was such a different experience to having to build a PC and install a virus blocker and do all this other palavering and, 
um, your average consumer often doesn't really understand what, what's going on behind the scenes until, as you said, um, their computers bricked it when they tried to roll a new operating system in. So um, I was interested in um, talking to you about um, offline mode for technologies and if you can explain um, to our listeners at home um, what that is and what, what that looks like for the average consumer. Sorry, what did you say? Offline technologies? Yeah, offline mode for technologies. Like if that's a wise thing for people to be doing or getting used to doing. Is it even possible? Well, is it yeah. possible? Well, I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because uh, I mean, I've, like as a, as a complete aside, I was looking at televisions recently and there's no such thing as a dumb television anymore. You can't get one. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, yeah. Lucy. No, it's true though. I got a new new TV arrive in the box, and oh my god, the stuff it wanted to hook up to. I'm like, oh no, I just wanted to be able to watch some Netflix in peace. Mm. But back to the question, Lucy. <laughs> yeah, back to the question. You know, this is super fascinating because this is something that came up um, with, and and there are so many issues that I saw with this case um, that kind of prompted me to be like, let's talk about this. Um, but you know, when IoT um, sort of uh, became a really uh, ubiquitous term a few years ago. Um, people started asking, like, what happens? To your point, Dan, <laughs> what happens if I buy a TV and um, I don't have the internet, for instance? And there's plenty of reasons, right? There are people who live in areas with poor connectivity or unreliable connectivity. There are places in the world that have internet shutdowns, which the government uses in different, you know, it's a sort of control measure. Um, but also, you know, sometimes people are just poor and they can't afford um, connection. Uh, because sometimes it's very expensive to have internet. I'm not sure if you can hear my dog barking behind me. I apologize if you can't. Um, so there was kind of this talk um, in 2015, 2016 about what should be the demand on people who sell IoT products, um, you know, and there really wasn't consensus. And I think consumer sort of regulation and legislation has really lagged behind <laughs> for consumers. Uh, but some of the things that we and people like Bruce Schneier and other like very prominent technologists put forward uh, was, you know, there needs to be an offline mode um, where you have this, an assumption that the product should be able to function entirely without the internet, which a lot of products actually can't. Um, you know, now we kind of have this expectation like uh, tablets and everything come with uh, car like 5G, 3G cards because we just don't know what to do with them. <laughs> they are not connected to the World Wide Web. So hypothetically, can you still buy a computer and keep it offline? Yes. Uh, but with the way that we engage in services um, and the way like most people use their browser the most out of anything on the computer, like what are you going to be able to do with that is the real question. <laughs> um, and you certainly won't be able to collaborate on documents or, you know, share your um, folders across devices. Um, you won't be able to do video calls. Um, you won't be able to game with your homies, <laughs> which, you know, even gaming, I think now is uh, just everything is super connected, which is wonderful. But yeah, it does come with a lot of, I think, risks. And um, there's an assumption that things are, um, yeah, just always connected. Yeah, and it does bring. Oh, sorry. Um, it does bring a little bit of a social divide as well because, um, you know, as you mentioned before, the you know the internet can go out. I joke about the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, but what's going to happen when the zombie apocalypse is upon us and everything gets switched off and nothing works? But it's also um, people who have a ding on their credit history and they have to prepay for their data dongles, which are incredibly expensive. A couple of hundred dollars and one big Dropbox update can completely balk you. So it, it actually creates a huge amount of problems for people on lower incomes or with credit history dings um, who simply 
you know, have have accessibility issues. So it's huge. Yeah, that's for sure. And one of the other, you know, it touched on a lot of these things. And I saw that a lot of the frustration on Reddit, for instance, was that people from it, it at least at the beginning, it seemed that it bricked older devices. Um, you know, and that's also a fascinating mm. discussion of the end of life and how long if you buy a phone or a computer, which now come, you know, you don't really buy it for the device itself anymore. You buy it for the interconnected ecosystem. So when yeah. you pay that one off price, how long should the vendor, you know, what be it whoever Mac or the Apple or Google or whoever's selling you the device, how long should they ensure that that's functional? You know, what are you, what's the deal that you're making with them when you buy it? Mm, absolutely. And speaking as someone who still has a Mac from 10 years ago that's still running Snow Leopard, I can definitely... Um, <laughs> attest to that look it's 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 been an interesting time for uh apple users and those of us who are interested in security uh Lu lucy as always uh, digital rights watch are uh, looking after us uh on you know our online world uh where can we find out more about what you guys do digitalrightswatch.org.au um, come hang out and subscribe to updates. Absolutely. Please do. We've been speaking to Lucy Krahulskova. I, I know I pronounced that wrong from Digital Rights Watch. Um, you are listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR with Warren, Rowe, and my name is Dan. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of RRR's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on RRR from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.